Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well, here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. Hey everybody, welcome back to another exciting episode of, this is Mormon News Roundup, and we have an exciting guest that's going to join us today. I'm your host, Al, here with my co-host, Dives, and we are joined by Mormon Book Reviews, Steve Pineker. So we are really excited about this week's episode. He's going to join us to help us analyze the premiere of Netflix's new FLDS miniseries, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. And dissect why Utah needs uh, leads the nation in falling church attendance. We're going to reflect on Dustin Lance Black's uncensored motivations for making Under the Banner of Heaven. And we're going to also uncover what Elder David A. Bednar really thinks about the media. So let's get this show going. Go ahead, uh, Dives, and uh, what's going on with you this week? Hey, uh, great to be here. <laughs> I would like to welcome uh, Stephen Pinecker onto the program. Uh, uh, Stephen, welcome to the uh, Mormon News Roundup. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be here. Wonderful. You do uh, your own podcast and show. Uh, what's the name of it? Uh, it's called uh, Mormon Book Reviews, which was primarily started last year as a YouTube channel. We've now branched off into a podcast format, where so we are available on all the podcast major podcast formats as well. I never really did podcasts, but a lot of people said, I need the audio version. So I'm like, okay, so we did that. And that's getting a lot of downloads with that too. So that's growing as well. What what's your elevator speech for Mormon book reviews? What what is it that you do, and why is it that you do it? Well, so I have the tagline: uh, Mormon book reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. Uh, the original purpose of my channel was, first of all, how in the world is Mormon book reviews domain name like unclaimed? I mean, like you know, somebody in the nineteen nineties had Christian book reviews, you know, <laughs> domain name, and. I'm just like uh, really interested in Mormonism. And so I was had about two or three different ideas for a YouTube channel. And then I'm looking at my bookshelf, staring me in the face of my collection that I've uh, acquired of books throughout the years. And I'm not a collector per se. I'm actually a reader or study a researcher. So I had all these books and I thought I'm going to do this channel where I review the books uh, of my bookshelf. Well, within weeks, I have some of the biggest names within Mormon scholarship reaching out to me. I have 12, 13 different publishers sending me books. So I'm never, ever going to get that bookshelf reviewed. But it's become an, it's evolved into uh, a fairly important uh, and influential podcast in its own way uh, within the scholarly community, but also within the layperson's community as well. So it's we've broken news. Uh, we've uh, new, new scholarship has arisen as a result. Papers are being written as a result of some of the uh, uh, episodes I've had. And so having an impact on Mormonism with just a year after starting, it, it's been pretty wild. So basically, my whole goal is not to proselytize, but to listen and listen to all the voices within the Restoration, which means I talk to all the uh all churches that were founded by Joseph Smith are claimed to be. And so I like to talk to all the different churches and different scholars and historians within those communities. And it's been quite an adventure and I'm learning as I'm going as well as my audience. So it's, it's been a really fun time. Well, we're thrilled to have you on the broadcast. It just reminds me of Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verses uh, 118, where it says, And all have not faith, seek ye diligently, and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books, words of wisdom, seek learning um, also by faith. So it just reminds me of that tagline. We are thrilled to have you with us. And I understand that you went to the Mormon uh, uh, History Association last week. How was that? Um, it was really good. Now, last year, I, 
Rick Bennett of Gospel Tangents went to me and said, you got to get out to MHA. And I wasn't planning on doing it. So last year I went and the first night I'm there, I introduced myself to Richard Bushman. And within five minutes, he agrees to come on my program. And that really opened up a lot of, I introduced myself to a lot of scholars, but nobody knew who I was. And it was really cool. And they treated me so well. So this year I go and it's so surreal because everybody knows who I am now. So like I literally go to Mormon History Association. I go to introduce myself to a scholar like, oh, there's so-and-so. And they're like, oh yeah, I know who you are. I listen to your program. I watch you. I know, I, I know what you're up to. So they've at least heard of me or they actually are uh, regular listeners of my program, which so I told Rick, I said, I feel like I'm part of the tribe. Well, this year, the uh, Mormon History Association uh, took place in Logan, Utah. And uh, the theme was actually kind of like a, a, a uh, had an art theme because the Bushmans, uh, Claudia Bushman was the president of the MHA this year. And so they brought in work, uh, artwork into the uh, into the into the program. So they had art displays. They also had uh talks and and sessions on art, Western art, Mormon art, and uh, different uh, interpretations of art within that context, in addition to what you would have with your regular, you know, historian stuff as well. So it was very fascinating. He kind of had a combination of the Bushman's uh, uh, Latter-day Saint Arts Project inter intertwined with the Mormon History Association. Uh, it had a very large turnout. Um, it, it was really cool just to talk to, to so many people. But one of the disadvantages of this is that there were so many concurrent panels going on that, I mean, at, at any given time, there were probably eight to 10 panels going on. Well, I would try to make a point to try to get out to every panel that I had a guest on, you know, that came onto my program and try to, you know, at least sit in for some of their presentations. But it got to be impossible because sometimes there'd be three or four of my guests giving presentations and giving reading papers at a time. But it was just really, uh, it's a great opportunity. And I tell people too, I said, you know, I'm a member of the Mormon History Association. It's not just for scholars. As a matter of fact, one of the coolest things about the Mormon History Association, it's it's open to lay people. So you, just as a person who's just interested in Mormon history, you, you don't even have a degree or anything like that uh, within history or whatever, you could actually submit papers and get, and, and uh, to, to the Mormon History Association and give presentations. And so that's like a cool thing. So I want to tell people, join Mormon History Association. It's open to everyone. And it's it's a blast if you're listening and interested in Mormonism. But I, I just really felt like uh, it was really cool to connect with people. I thought that the presentations were really good. And just to summarize, you know, Claudia Bushman for the closing dinner uh, gave like the keynote and she talked about what it was like. So keep in mind, she's in her 90s. And here she is, a professional historian, uh, became a professional historian with five children at a time when you just didn't do that. So she was able to kind of detail her life's journey and what it was like to be in, in the 1950s and 60s when you just didn't do this. You were supposed to stay home and take care of your kids. And that, this wasn't just a Mormon thing. This was an American thing back then. Yeah. And, uh, and for her to tell her story and that she was a trailblazer, uh, it was really an honor and privilege to be able to hear her story. And uh, it's just, like I said, Mormon History Association is the bomb. Uh, just a few things, uh, other things I want to add is that you have about a dozen or so vendors there from, from bookstores to uh, different uh, publishers. Uh, so if you really just want to get uh, your geek on, if you're a Mormon and you, or if you're just a geek about Mormonism, whether you're outside or inside the church, I'm an outsider. Uh, Mormon History Association is really the place to be. Um, it's fascinating and it's an open place. It's a place where things are openly and candidly discussed, uh, which I really appreciate.
Well, th- that sounds absolutely fantastic. And I understand that also you were in Nauvoo this last week. And of course, in 1840, Joseph Smith, you know, he gave Commerce, Illinois, the new name Nauvoo. And uh, that's Hebrew for beautiful. How did you uh, how did you enjoy the uh, the city of Joseph Smith? Well, I have to say, Joseph Smith got it right. It is a beautiful place. Um, I think that uh, I really loved it. I was just there for a day. Um, I was there to, first of all, Paul DeBarth, who's the lead archaeologist for the uh, Joseph Smith Historic Sites in Nauvoo, Illinois, for the Community of Christ. Um, he invited me to participate in an archaeological dig. So this year, so so what they do is they have this program called I Dig Nauvoo. And for a full month, they do archaeological expeditions uh, where they uh, go to sites, historic sites. Like basically what you have is a lot of places where there's no house, but there's a foundation. And in this case, what we did was we actually uh, they dug into the foundation uh, of where the times and seasons was for a while. And it was also the home for Don Carlos Smith as well. And so uh, this was the site in which the time is, Times and Seasons was published, but it was also the site where the 1840 edition of the Book of Mormon was published. And one of the coolest things is they're excavating, we're literally excavating typeset from the, from, from the printing press. Oh, for very real? Well, yeah, that very well would have been used at, to, to do the Times and Seasons as well as the Book of Mormon. So it was really cool to just get there and interact with the people. There were kids there. Jeff McCullough, who's an evangelical uh, Christian, who's also started a YouTube channel called Hello Saints. He was there. He drove up from St. Louis to participate, and his kids participated in the dig, and they had a really good time. And so basically through June 17th, so you actually still have a few days. If you're going to end up in Nauvoo over the course of the next few days, uh, you could go and volunteer uh, to do an expedition, even if you're just there for an hour or two, and they'll give you the tools, they'll tell you how to do things. And so if you ever wanted to participate in that, it's really, really awesome. And then uh, later that night, later that day, we got a personal tour from Lachlan McKay, who is uh, an apostle in the the community of Christ, as well as the chief historian for the church. And he's a direct descendant of Joseph Smith. And he had keys in hand, and he took me and Rick Bennett, Rick Bennett of Gospel Tangents, on a personal tour of... uh, individual properties that the church owns. Some of them were not even open to the public. Um, And so it was just really cool to experience Nauvoo that way. And of course, I went up to the temple and it's quite a beautiful sight to be there. And uh, there were thousands of people there. It was it was really hopping. And so it was just cool to interact with LDS folk and engage the history. Uh, Nauvoo was really was the epicenter. It was everything that Mormonism could have been at one time. Uh, it was uh, it was a hopeful place. Joseph was building Zion, and uh, you know it, was, it had a lot of potential. And just to be there to share that experience as an outsider, and also be respectful that this is a holy place. This is the if you will the Jerusalem of Mormonism, and uh, I really felt honored and privileged to be able to participate in, in, in all this, and it was an awesome trip that I took. Just two quick follow-up questions to that, Stephen. Thank you very much. Number one, did you uncover any white Lamanites during your archaeology, and did you find the city of Zarahemla? <laughs> well, unfortunately, I did look across the Mississippi, Mississippi River, and I was thinking, okay, Wayne May is probably over there looking for Zarahemla. Uh, I didn't make my way over to the Iowa side uh, to get there. I would hope to one day get out to, uh, I, I know Wayne, Wayne knows who I am. I'm pretty plugged in with the Heartlander movement. And uh, it'd be interesting to, <laughs> so no, no white Lamanites. I, I did, too somebody, bad. <laughs> somebody did tell me that they believe that uh, one of the Heartlanders told me, and he's a friend of mine, he says he believes that Joseph Smith is buried in a Nephite cemetery or a Nephite burial ground. 
Um, so that's that that's significant to them because, of course, they believe that the Hopewell culture uh, is the Nephites and Hopewell culture stuff is there. So they kind of say that it's appropriate that Joseph would be buried amongst the Nephites. That's very interesting because the Book of Mormon basically claims that most, if not all, of the Nephites, minus just a few people, were all wiped out. Minus Moroni and the three Nephites, there, the Book of Mormon doesn't give much a wiggle room for as far as remnants are concerned. But uh, we don't have enough time to get into that today. But that is very interesting stuff. Thanks for um, bringing us up to date on that. I do have uh, I do have something I'd like to follow up with with last week, and that was the Washington D.C. Temple Open House set an attendance record. So last Saturday, which was the day of our podcast, the Washington D.C., which is the day that I went through. Uh, last week set a record with 14,193 visitors through a, an open house of a temple in one day. And that has never been done before. That many people, not that has never been done. So that's a lot of folks coming through. And the Washington, D.C. temple is somewhere uh, north of uh, 250,000 people. Uh, that's a lot of people going through a temple, let me tell you. And let me, let me, let me inform you, Al and Stephen, that immediately following uh, my temple attendance last week, I came down with COVID. Uh -oh. So first, my youngest son caught COVID about uh, about a, a two weeks ago. He's fine. He's 12 years old. Then my brother came out to visit us and he caught COVID. Then I caught COVID and my son caught COVID. So directly after going to the temple, I haven't been to the temple in a while, but what am I supposed to, uh, you know, what am I supposed to learn from this that immediately after going to the, the, the Latter-day Saint temple, I come down with COVID? What am I supposed to take away from this experience? Sir, is that cannot be a coincidence, right? Uh, was it a super spreader event? I mean, it, <laughs> it might have been. It could have been. Know. So, I, you know, I, I thought that we were supposed to be promised blessings from temple attendance. And as soon as I go, boom, I get COVID. So I'm just wondering, you know, am I being too myopic about this? I, maybe there's two ways to think about this, though. Number one, maybe I had COVID, but God was keeping me from having the symptoms until after I made it through the temple. So while, so you're, while you're the most, um, let's say, uh, infectious. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's one way. Or the other way is, hey, God didn't want me to go to the temple, and he smote me. So mm -hmm. I can't figure out which one is the correct one. Uh, but I, it just reminds me of Job uh, mm -hmm. in, in the Bible. You know, he was uh, smitten with a, a, a lot more than I was, I suppose. Oh, and, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, Stephen, uh, do, do you believe, by the way, Stephen, do you believe in a literal Job? Uh No. Okay. No, I think that uh, Job is a, a is an ancient text that's t it's actually a pagan text that was kind of reworked by the Hebrews. Uh, so uh, it's it's a it's an he's a pagan it's a pagan story. So it has its roots uh, in, in a different culture, a different world, um, and it was reworked. Uh, so yeah, no, I don't think Job was meant to be taken as literal history or a literal person. Well, that's interesting that you say that because Joseph Smith was an extreme literalist, and he took very he took most of the things in the Bible very literally. And it just reminded me of when he was in the Liberty Jail, section one twenty one of the Doctrine and Covenants, and starting in section six, it says, "Remember thy suffering saints, O O our God, and thy servants." will rejoice in thy name forever. My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. And then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. Thy friends do stand by thee. They shall hail thee again with warm hearts and friendly hands. Thou art not yet as Job. Thy friends do not contend against thee, neither charge thee with transgressions as they did Job. So unless God is revealing to Joseph Smith that Job was just a metaphorical figure. It, it appears that Joseph Smith really believed in a literal Job. So I kind of feel like a Job here. And and that kind of makes you guys, when I kind of makes you guys, when I'm thinking about it, who was Job surrounded by in the Old Testament? His, his friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bildad, and Zophar. Mm -hmm. 
I'll be Bildab. <laughs> okay. Well, it just reminds me of Job 16, 12, 2, which says, you are all miserable comforters, all of you. And that was who you speaking to his friends. Well, and by the I way, would, can I, oh, can I, ahead, can I offer words of comfort to you that perhaps yes. had you not gone to the temple, uh-huh. maybe it would have been much worse or perhaps you wouldn't be with us. So by going to the temple, ah. it made it very minor. Yes, mm-hmm. that, I, I like that you're a glasses half full type of person, Stephen, and I'm going to take that comfort to heart. So I, I would like to retract what I said earlier. But I just <laughs> well just played, to... Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the RLDS Church, the Community of Christ, they accept as canonized scripture the entire letters that are in the Liberty Jail. We only get three sections, but they get six sections. So for some reason, we only canonize three of those sections. But uh, I always like those Liberty Jail ones. And believe me, I'm going to be keeping an eye out for whirlwinds and tr- any tropical storms around here. I am I'm going to be going far away if there's anything remotely like a hurricane coming my direction. I'm definitely now I'm in uh, Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Now uh, we're following up from uh, also last week. Elder Bednar uh, is once again back in the spotlight here and he gave a state conference. You know, the the uh, uh, the apostles almost every week are at a state conference or a general conference or a regional conference every single Sunday. And somebody Mm -hmm. um, uh, leaked out some video of him right after he gave his famous, uh, you know, he took the press through the D.C. temple. And then he gave the prayer breakfast. He spent quite a bit of time out here in D.C. And we kind of have um, him uh, talking about what he really feels about the media in kind of an interesting clip. It's about a minute long. I want to play this. And this is how he really felt about giving those press briefings, the the tours and the luncheon. Let's see what Elder Bednar thinks about the media. This is once again, before I play this, this is the reason that Elder Bednar is my favorite apostle, because he really tells you what he thinks and I uh, really respect that. Let's see, hope this audio comes through, and I'd like to get your reactions. I don't know how many times I said it in Washington, D.C., as I took the press through. I said, this is not about the building, because all they're asking about are questions about the building. How big is this? How much did this cost? I don't know. I said, excuse me, you're asking the wrong questions. What you need to understand is what happens in here. What happens in here is that the tendency for us all to be self-centered and selfish can be changed through the commitments that we make with God. Now, when you're explaining that to really snarky press people, they kind of go, what? Yeah, this is not this is not a cathedral. You just come in and look around and you're impressed by the beauty. That's not why we build these things. You change people from the inside out. God does that. You don't change people from the outside in. You live in a world where you think that you change people by changing their environment and their circumstances. As members of the church, we live in a world where if we will open our hearts to God's influence in our lives, he changes us from the inside out. And that's the only way people are ever really changed. So I explained to them the nature, didn't describe in detail, but the nature of the covenants. In these instruction rooms, we covenant that we will be selfless. I think we got most of it out there. Uh, How would you describe his tone when he was talking about the media to members of the church? How would you describe that tone? Um, (laughs) Snarky members of the media. The old snarky know. media. <laughs> Is it the media that's being snarky? Uh, I, getting a tour of a building, asking how much it costs, asking for, uh, about the building that they're touring. And he's like, this isn't about the building. <laughs> well, it's kind of odd to give an open house that is specifically about a building, right? An open house is yeah. about a building. And mm-hmm. then they ask about the building, but that you're not supposed to ask about the building. Yeah. Well, I thought that's what the open house was for. I thought so too. 
Now they yeah. ask how much the DC temple costs. And uh, apparently that is a snarky question. You're not supposed to ask that. Uh, and he refuses to answer, but we can give the answer thanks to the widow's might. So the Washington DC temple is a 763,000 square foot temple. It costs about $1,100 per square foot. Uh, don't forget that it uh, had, was in renovations for four years. We'll say that it was a half million dollars in renovations per four years. If you multiply all that together, we will give the media the answer that that building is worth a little bit more than $200 million. And you ever notice that with Elder Bednar that people usually don't ask him the right questions? It is very hard to ask Elder Bednar the right questions. That's what I've noticed. Yeah. Um, is this because he has the, the questions that should be asked already, like predetermined in his mind. I don't know. Let me tell you, I've never heard somebody ask him a question. And he goes, you asked me the right question today. It's always seems to be the wrong question. It's hard to answer, ask this Mm -hmm. guy the right question. I that's all I can say. And I didn't realize that there was such a thing as a right or a wrong question. I thought they were just questions. Well, wasn't there a general authority back in the eighties who basically said, if you're, if you're asked a question, but you, you, you don't answer the question that they're giving you, you give the answer to the question they should have asked you. Uh, that's kind of a strategy that they employ. Yeah. I didn't think that that was a general authority. I thought that that was like Bill Clinton politics. Uh, no, this was, <laughs> I uh, really do. Uh, oh, let's see. This was a BYU religion professor. I remember uh, he was there at my time at BYU and he said that. I uh, can't remember his name for off the top of my head, but yeah, it's on YouTube. Where he says, "Yeah, you don't answer the question that they ask. You ask, right. you answer the question they should have asked." <laughs> right um, now, it just reminds me, real quick, that Jesus he went to the temple many, many times in the scripture. I mean, he, you know, one of the very first things in the Gospel of Luke is what uh, right after he was born, he went to the temple with uh, Anna and Simeon, right? And then there's also in uh, I believe it's the Gospel of Luke where he returns to the temple when he's 12 years old, and remember Mary and Jesus quote. Now, this is according to the Joseph Smith translation here, Stephen, found him in the temple, quote, sitting in the midst of the doctors, and they were hearing him and asking him questions, end quote. So that's a big difference in the biblical uh, version of it, right? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm trying to imagine this young Jesus who was in the temple with all these doctors and lawyers who are asking him questions. I'm trying to imagine him saying, you know what, guys, you're asking the wrong question. (laughs) Or when his parents finally found him saying, hey, mom and dad, good to see you. Can you believe these doctors? They're so snarky. (laughs) That's just what I'm trying to imagine here. So, okay, that's all the follow ups from last week. This is why I like David Bednar. Nobody likes him except for as much as I do. I love David Bednar. He's he's my favorite. Uh, Any other follow ups from last week? I don't think so. I think we're uh, set to move forward. Wonderful. Now, our first article here uh, is that the church is claiming that uh, through the Desert News, Al, that gun shootings are on the rise because of deadbeat dads. Yeah, there's been a little bit of uh, gun violence that's um, elevated in the in recent past, should we say. Um, so from the Deseret News, um, they did an article where uh, Senator Mike Lee from Utah, uh, he's really um, trying to point out the fact that, well, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be because of guns that uh, we have an increase in violence. What we're seeing is there's an increase in uh, violence in the media, violence in pornography. Um, there's, you know, uh, the the breakdown of the societal breakdown of the family where you don't have the traditional nuclear uh, mother, one mother, one father, and their, uh, you know, per, uh, what, all of their children is a nuclear family unit. And uh, 
So he's saying, well, you know, it's it's not even about that. He's saying, uh, which, which I find to be funny that he's going that route too. Um, he's saying that this is uh, about the in, the influence that fathers have in their kids' lives. So that dads need to be more um, actively involved in their children's lives. And then that will, uh, according to him, he says that's what's needed in order to curb the rise in uh, gun shootings. Uh, or, uh, the, yeah, the mass shootings. Yeah, so the article cites a 2019 meta-study from researchers in Amsterdam that said, quote, growing up in single-parent families is associated with an elevated risk of involvement in crime by adolescents, end quote. So that seems to, it, it seems to uh, bolster the claim that, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, gun shooting is associated with deadbeat dads. Is, is, that seems, is, is, that, is that accurate? Or, or what do you think, Stephen? Is, is deadbeat dads the reasons for this rise in gun, in gun violence? You know, I, it's, it, I think there's, the, the thing is, is there's just so many different factors that go into it. I do think that easy access to guns, obviously, uh, is, is a factor uh, for, uh, and, and, but th- there is some truth. I mean, there is truth to the fact that, you know, uh, young men who do not have fathers in their lives uh, tend to be, uh, have these issues happen where there's uh, does lead to higher levels of criminality and these kind of things. Now, whether it's directly related to school shootings per se, it's hard to say. I mean, th- there's so many mm-hmm. complex things going on here. I think the, one of the most difficult things I have about this whole thing, whenever we have these mass shootings is that each camp just goes and brings out the same things all the time. There's very little mm-hmm. attempt to actually have a conversation with each other. And so yeah. everybody just goes into their camp. Well, the problem is that, you know, violence and, on TV and fatherless homes and stuff like that, which could be a factor, right? Mm-hmm. But it also could be the fact that an 18-year-old your kid turns 18 and he can have uh, wep- get access to weapons very easily mm-hmm. um, is something that, you know, I'm, I'm not like, I mean, I'm, I'm more libertarian in my perspective, so I'm not like a mm-hmm. big like government kind of person. But I do think like some common sense things, I mean, uh, can't, I mean, you do have to take a driver's test to, mm-hmm. to, to drive a car. I do think that you could have some common sense things set up uh, to do it. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, again, that's Mike Lee. He's trying to just mm-hmm. take one thing, shoehorn it and say that's the problem. And I think that both sides do that. And I think that's it's just to, mm-hmm. it's a detriment to the whole conversation. Yeah. It, well, his, he's um, coming from a, a stance that his uh, opinion is as valid as anybody's. And he's coming from this stance because there really hasn't been any uh, approved um, like money to fund research into why is uh, mass shootings, you know, that they, they, they have no research uh, to get the data. So he's just throwing his uh, theory out there. And well, his theory is as good as anybody's at this point, because there's no actual data to go from. So, yeah. Yeah. The article t- says from uh, Philip Cohen, professor of sociology at the University of Maryland, quote, uh, Maryland, mm-hmm. quote, conservatives who talk about family structure, fatherlessness or mental health after mass shootings are simply not serious. No serious policy analyst considers these actionable causes of unique America's unique problem of mass shootings, end quote. So some studies seem to show, yeah, if you if you have fatherless in a home, yes, it does lead to increased violence. But other experts are, are saying uh, that's just a big red herring. Yeah. So it's it's really we do need to get uh, some studies out there and uh, it, we do have approval now uh, since 2020 to, to do some research on this. Um, but one of the, there's several holes in uh, Senator Mike Lee's theory. And that's that um, when you look at um, how many kids come from broken homes in this country, not every kid's out there shooting up the school. Okay. And that's a lot of kids that come from broken homes. Furthermore, 
On the other side of the spectrum, let's look at the kids who are shooting up the schools. The ones that uh, pretty well started it off in 1999 was my senior year of high school. I remember Columbine High School very well. Those kids, they came from uh, homes that were intact. Um, one of their fathers was uh, highly educated, highly, um, you know, uh, very motivated to be in his kids' lives as well. And he, the, the kid just had some screws loose, you know. The other kid, his dad was heavily involved in their uh, local church. So, I mean, this isn't a matter of, well, you know, dads need to come back to church. Dad needs to get um, involved in their kids' lives. Because in that specific uh, instance, it wouldn't have made a difference. So I don't know about the rest of them. I'm excited to see um, us actually do some research and maybe get something done. Because Stephen's absolutely right. We have a very polarized country. And um, it seems like anytime this issue comes up, you have on the right wing side people saying, well, let's try anything except for restricting the uh, the access to guns. And then on the other side, very far left, you got people saying, let's not do anything except for um, restrict access to guns. And I think that there's a lot of steps in between that people are just missing. We, we've got to start compromising in this country and start doing something. Yeah, the article talks about there's one expert in the article who said, quote, there is also no relationship between the percent of single parents and gun violence rates within a country. That doesn't appear to be a risk factor. Marriage mm -hmm. rates, end quote. And marriage rates, that's not a, a factor. Divorce rates, that's not a factor. So he's saying there's a very little relationship between the ideas that are postulated by, you know, that, that deadbeat dads are the cause of the gun violence. He says that, that's 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 smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Um, so that's... Uh... That's one from the, the Deseret News. Are we ready to go on to the next one? Because that kind of uh, ties right in. Yes, it does. Uh, so the LDS Church had its own uh, issue with some gun violence um, this last week. Uh, there was a shooting at the Hill Camorra Visitor Center. Now, um, this one's a little bit different. Um, <laughs> this is, comes from KSL-TV, uh, which is the church's television news uh, so there were several shots fired, um, and several of them hit the visitor center. One bullet actually broke a window. Thankfully, nobody was actually hurt. Um, but, you know, it's hard to, to cry persecution on this one because when the police got there and did the, uh, the investigation into it, they found that there was a nearby farm where there was a kid that was out uh, with some guns doing some target practice and just wasn't really practicing the, the kind of safety that gun owners should have. And he wasn't paying attention to what was behind his targets. And uh, yeah, so it, it wasn't nefarious. He was just, he did get cited for handling his firearms in a unsafe manner. And the police came, they took several of the gun, or so, uh, maybe even all of his guns, but yeah, the, so that got uh, taken care of. But well, it was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully no one was hurt during this. That's the most important yeah, thing is no yeah. one was hurt during this. So we're very thankful that no one was hurt. Absolutely. But it shows the gun violence is creeping uh, towards the steps of uh, even uh, sacred sites like the uh, like Palmyra and the Hill mm -hmm. Mora. Yeah, for sure. I for so, one. Oh, go ahead, Stephen. I was gonna say, have you guys been out to Hill Kamara? I, I have not myself. No. Yeah, this is what's so fast. Well, actually, next year's Mormon History Association is going to be in Rochester, New York. So I'm definitely going to get out to Kamara uh, oh, cool. next year. But one of the things that really struck me about Nauvoo, and it, I think it appears also with Hill Kamara, is these places are like 
in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> They're like in rural areas. That, that if anything, there were probably more people living in those places during Joseph Smith's time than there are now. It's just yeah. really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th this is like uh, going up to um, the Bear Lake area in northern Utah. And like a lot of these communities were bustling uh, towns like you know Paris, Idaho. There's a huge tabernacle there that serves all of what 500 people that still live in the town. But I mean, once upon a time, that was quite a, a center that had a lot of people. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> you go back to Palmyra and Manchester and it's still farm country. And yeah, there's fewer people now than there were back then. Yeah, and I just want to make sure I've got the dates covered here. This was uh, uh, the shooting was on June 9, twenty twenty two, and the article that we list in the show notes was off of uh, ksltv.com. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, if you have any comments for us listeners out there, be sure to come over to uh, mormonnewsroundup.org or drop us an email at kolob at mormonnewsroundup.org. That's K O L O B. Uh, yeah, so I, you know, I guess this is at least one hill come more. This is finally the the only good thing that I think that came out of this. If there is anything good that could come out of this, is that finally we have a hill come battle that actually left some evidence behind. So that's that's, <laughs> that's the only looking on the bright side. <laughs> that's the only positive thing I can find from this gun yeah, shooting. Yeah. They will um, find bullets in the hill come when they excavate it. Yes. Now our <laughs> next article, uh, speaking of uh, of going from the sublime to the ridiculous, was published on KUTV on Thursday, June 9th, twenty twenty two, and this is Lehigh Chocolate Shop apologizes for racist Twinkies. What is going on here? So I, I first of all, I used to teach a uh, school in Lehigh, so I'm very familiar with the town. And uh, Stephen, can you describe this picture for our podcast listeners out there? What are we looking at on these Twinkies? Well, we're basically looking at uh, two sets of Twinkies. And one is more, uh, well, you have one that says uh, Hilkamora or yeah, Hilkamora Nephite, and it's a brownish, light brown uh, color and or tan and then you also have the hill Kimura laminites which is like in, in the dark chocolate covered uh, twinkies i saw this on reddit the other day um and i was like whoa is this for real <laughs> so yeah that's the description <laughs> yeah, well this is a mainstream news article we didn't call we want to we only give you the 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 tried and the true here matthew sampson kutv thursday june 9th uh 2022 on on kutv um al can a twinkie be racist I'm actually quite impressed with this, okay? And, um, I, you know, this is uh, something that for this Lehigh Chocolate Shop to say, you know, this we got chocolate-covered Twinkies. They look just like the Hill Kimura. I mean, it's kind of clever, sure. Can a Twinkie be racist? Uh, maybe it's a little tone deaf in the, uh, you know, in the Black Lives Matter uh, day and age in which we live. That's probably not the the best uh, way to describe it because what they're talking about is that the, the Nephites were light skinned and the Lamanites were dark skinned. So um, the, the analogy is a little poor taste. Sure. But um, I mean, really considering it, I think it's pretty accurate because we've got Nephites that came from the middle East. So it's not like they were, you know, Scandinavian um, or, you know, light skinned. These guys were uh, brown skinned people. They came over to um, the Americas, and then uh, when they divided into the Lamanites, the curse of black skin was put on them. Um, and so you had light Nephites and dark Lamanites. But um, it, it's not a really bad comparison for those who believe in the Book of Mormon, but still it's a little bit... Uh, uh, well, it, it, 
it, it, it's racially insensitive, should we say? Okay, would this be out. more or would this be worse? Would it be more racist if the white Nephite Twinkies were white and the Lamanite Twinkies were red? Would that make it better or worse? Well, that's a great question because, you know, we were talking off the the other day how one of the most fascinating things about the Book of Mormon, it it talks about the curse of dark skin uh, as a Lamanite curse. But yet at the time, uh, the people in that period referred to uh, Native Americans as red men. So the Book Mm -hmm. of Mormon uses dark as opposed to red, which kind of is interesting to me because like if, if, if you're using this as a 19th century uh, influences or it's a 19th century product, it would have most, it would have been more appropriate for it to have been, the curse would have been red skin as opposed to dark skin. So I find that the fascinating. And I also want to know, can a Twinkie be woke? I want to, I want to know that too. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's the good, that's the tough question there because I mean, as a fat kid, I feel like I have a, a, a say in this. Um, so when it comes to the Twinkies, um, I'm not a big fan of white chocolate, which I'm sure that's how you're going to you know, make them white. Um, either a strawberry or cherry flavored um, you know, covering. I, I can go with that. That sounds uh, kind of like a strawberry shortcake. Sounds delicious. Um, I'm not uh, against chocodiles, which is uh, in dark chocolate. I'm not uh, against the milk chocolate ones. So, I mean, I'll eat just about any of them. Um, so, but uh, I think that I would probably prefer the milk chocolate over all of them. Um, yeah, they, the, <laughs> the owners eventually apologized. They said, we would like to announce new names for some of our chocolates. The shop said in an Instagram story, our chocolate cover Twinkies are now just called Camoras. So they're both Camoras, just dark Camora, light Camora, no more Nephite, no more Lamanite. And, and really, I think it's it's quite a clever thing. I mean, when you look at the, the shape of the hill Camora, it looks like a Twinkie. I mean, it, I, I think this was rather clever personally. Well, actually, was this good for the shop? Because this got inter- this literally got news coverage across the country. Was this a good decision by this shop to have racist Twinkies? Because their profile has been extremely elevated. Probably. I mean, the, like I said, the concept of uh, chocolate-covered Twinkies, the Chocodile, it's been around for with Hostess for a long time. So uh, this was rather clever and it worked out really well for them. Well, what Stephen, what you said about um, a red man uh, in the Book of Mormon, what is interesting about the Book of Mormon is it's very, very devoid of any coloring really whatsoever. Mm. There's, you, there's not greens. There's not, True. you know, when they're describing landscapes, there's not greens, there's not blues. When you search for, there's no purples. When you search the Book of Mormon, silver and gold. Yeah, it's very yeah. devoid of any coloring scheme whatsoever. Now, remember, the Nephites were described in Second Nephi chapter 5 as, in the original Book of Mormon, uh, white and delightsome. Later, that was changed to pure and delightsome. Now, I believe that that change was in 1981, but I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't swear to mm-hmm. it. And the Lamanites were, were uh, cursed with a dark skin. So you had white and dark, so it is a bit vague. But yeah, there's not a lot of color in the Book of Mormon. It's not very hmm. vibrant. Hmm. Good, good catch. I never even thought about that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, I, needless to say, I guess um, that, you know, probably should avoid uh, naming people after uh, after these individuals anyway. It uh, doesn't seem like a very good practice and uh, probably yeah. best to be uh, uh, on the safe side on these things. Yeah. But still, I think to call them Camorras is rather clever. Uh, just, you know, leave off the, the Lamanites and the Nephites name and you're, you're set. Yes. Because so hey, often I think I think people uh, I don't think they're racist. I, I don't think the people themselves are racist. I think sometimes people yeah. just out of ignorance do things, especially when you're kind of in a sheltered 
and, and sure. you live in a, a bubble. So I, I think that they, they, I think they recognize the error of their ways. I, I, you know, so I often want to just make sure I don't want people, you know, firebombing their place or anything like that. You know, <laughs> uh, I think, I think they just, they, they goofed. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, is there's interesting, um, is that, uh, there, according to the Book of Mormon, there's virtually no Nephites left, um, almost none, uh, despite what uh, you said earlier, Steve. It really doesn't leave a lot of, they were basically wiped out at the Battle of the Hill Cumorah. And also the Lamanites, uh, you know, I know Spencer Kimball said at one time that there was 160 million Lamanites, but that number has been shrinked down extremely small. So the number of surviving Nephites and Lamanites, if someone were to try to sue this restaurant, you'd need to find a Nephite or a Lamanite. And believe me, that is a tall, tall order. That's right. You cannot be offended by proxy. <laughs> All right. Uh, what about our next article, Al? All right. This one, um, I, I, honestly, I'm amongst a couple of academics here, and I myself being the dunce cap kid in the corner, I feel a little underqualified to go with this one. This one's a study on coffee from the acpjournals.org. Uh, the Annals of Internal Medicine Association of uh, they're studying the association of sugar sweetened and artificially sweetened and unsweetened coffee consumption with all cause and cause specific mortality. So the question that they're asking is, is coffee contributing to all cause deaths, which is natural and cause specific deaths, which is a, a disease that would, or a disease uh, or cancer cause death, if that makes sense if I'm speaking it correctly. <clears throat> so they uh, started off with 171,616 participants. This was a big study. The mean age of the study was 55.6 years. So they, this was also an older group. Um, they did a follow-up that on um, these people between 2009 and 2018, and they came to find out that um, actually coffee's really not associated with early deaths. In fact, they determined that both sweetened and unsweetened coffee drinkers lived longer and enjoyed better health as well as cardiovascular health. So you had fewer cases of cardiovascular disease. Wow. So, so that's mm -hmm. even all the way up to drinking up to 5.5 cups of coffee a day, which is like a lot of coffee, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah, I think I find this very interesting because, you know, growing up, even, I do remember uh, even in the 80s, there were some studies that seemed to indicate that coffee could be dangerous. So uh, that would often be the studies that people within the LDS tradition would point out to. But as the science is uh, growing and the evidence is growing, that to me, uh, coffee is just like really awesome. First of all, I love coffee. Uh, it helps get me out going in the morning. And uh, I, I, I think it's a gift from God myself. Oh, yeah. Stephen, I think that that is the reason that you didn't find any white Lamanites during your dig um, is because you're really, really not in tune there. Um, <laughs> you know, this was a huge study, 170,000 people for 17 years, one of the yeah. largest studies of its kind. And you're right, Stephen, in times past, there has been some mixed results of saying that uh, coffee has not been necessarily good for you or bad. But the science is the needle is really swinging towards that coffee really is uh, good for you. Um, even drinking sweetened coffee with sugar, even up to 5.5 uh, cups per day. Yeah, so drinking a lot of coffee with that uh, demon sugar in it, uh, will it's still good for you. 
Yeah. Now, uh, just remember the word of wisdom, which is where the Latter-day Saints believe in the word of wisdom that was received back in 1833 and its acceptance by individual members. That was very gradual. Of course, we all know the story that Joseph Smith drank wine in Carthage jail. So even at that time in 1844, it wasn't widely uh, adopted. And coffee itself is nowhere mentioned in the, in the word of wisdom, is it? The word uh, coffee not, does not appear in the scriptures. Nope, not specifically. It mentions it uh, as hot drinks, I guess, or not for the belly, but for right, strong drinks, drink. hot drinks. Yeah. So remember, the original word of wisdom was not by way of commandment. It says that specifically. It's only in starting in September 1851, the patriarch of the church, John Smith, delivered a talk in general conference. After which Brigham Young proposed that all saints formally covenant to abstain from tea, coffee, tobacco, whiskey, and all things mentioned in the Word of Wisdom that was published in the Millennial Star. And the motion was accepted unanimously and became binding as a commandment for the church members thereafter. But that still didn't make it mandated until 1921. So 1921, it was part of the Temple Recommend interview questions. So you want to talk about a gradual rollout. It's almost 100 years before coffee became... Uh, it's uh you know became such a bad thing it's very fascinating and i I always tell people I said odds are pretty good that if I went back in time, I could probably sit down with Joseph and or Brigham Young and have a cup of coffee with them and also probably have a beer um so that's that's the real history of what happened there and it's interesting because I've been to Kirtland, Ohio, and it's a house that they had uh, the attic where they had the school of the prophets, and you had these these floors where uh, basically they're doing the School of the Prophets and they're, they're chewing tobacco and they're spitting on the floors. And the tobacco is making its way right underneath them is the kitchen where Emma and the girls are having their tea and it lands on their table. And so Emma's complaining to Joseph, like, we got to do something about this, this tobacco juice coming down from the ceiling onto our, our thing. So a lot of people think that Joseph kind of said, OK, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to say no tobacco and we're going to say no tea. So then so, so if, if, if you've got to give up tobacco, then we're going to make you give up tea. Some people have speculated that was also the case, but I've been in that room and it's, it's really an interesting story. That is an interesting story. I'm glad that you yeah. brought it up. Yeah. Now, um, now president Nelson revised the temple recommend question. The last revision of the temple run questions to my knowledge was in October of 2019. That was shortly after president Nelson uh, took the reins and question number 11 is the only question that deals with coffee. And it says, do you understand and obey the word of wisdom? Now, you can still answer that question. Let me, let me. It's pretty simple to answer that question and still drink coffee. You just say, as originally revealed to Joseph Smith in 1833, I understand that it was by way of, uh, not by way of commandment, and the word coffee is never mentioned. So, I mean, if you want to be nuanced, you understand and obey the word of wisdom, you could still drink coffee and say yes to that question if you do it under the guise of saying it was part of the original revelation, not Brigham Young's, not his change, and not the addition in, in 1921, which made it, you know, uh, mandated. But as originally revealed, I really don't think that people, people say, oh, if you drink coffee, you can't go to heaven. I, I mean, I don't even think according to the church teachings, that's accurate. That's just my, that's my two cents. And, you know, Fair a lot enough. of people say that the idea of hot drinks was more related to hard liquor. So I don't know if either one of you have had uh, a shot of uh, liquor. Yeah. Uh, but, but basically, uh, if you if you drink it, it burns. Yeah. It's like yeah. hot. Yeah, so it burns you think, up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, some yeah. people think that it was more that a reference to, to that. Because, like, what's the difference between hot chocolate, coffee, and soup? They're all the same mm-hmm. consistency. I don't see why yeah. one is uh, hot chocolate and soup are acceptable. But coffee isn't. It, it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, you know, as we discussed earlier, Stephen, that I mean, the word of wisdom now is really not necessarily about healthfulness. It's really more of a test. 
you know, mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus is filled with things that you can eat, things that you can't eat. And, you know, science is not necessarily on board with what's in the book of Leviticus. It's really about God's people being a peculiar people. Muslims don't drink uh, alcohol. They don't eat pork. You know, uh, uh, Israel's, uh, you know, Hebrews today and uh, Jewish people today, Orthodox or non-Orthodox, they they have kosher food. It's all about, it's more of a test of yourself than it is um, of what science is trying to prove. Mm -hmm. Which would would be a, a good argument if that was the reasoning all along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be a, that would be a good argument if it it would have been nice if mm-hmm. these new studies that have been brought forward had proved what was in you know the church's interpretation of the uh, of word of wisdom, but that is mm-hmm. simply not the case. Um, yeah. I think that's it on the uh, on the coffee. Uh, yeah, Al, the, can you take us to the next uh, article? Yeah, uh, the the last thing I wanted to say about that was I was actually most surprised by that article in that they had uh, that many people because this was in Great Britain where they did the study i'm surprised they had that many brits that actually drink coffee i thought they were a tea drinking people but okay um so you the next article utah leads the nation in falling church attendance so on twitter there was a uh let's see his name is ryan burge berg or burge i I can't i there's an e at the end so i'm sorry um but if you go to ryan burge twitter you can see that uh, he's done a study because uh Somebody asked him, hey, you know, what is the the um, church attendance rate over the last couple of years? And uh, so from 2020, he uh, noticed that there was uh, between or actually I should say between 2008 and 2020, he uh, looked all of them up and found that across the Bible Belt specifically, there was a lot of uh, falling off in church attendance um, in a lot of states that uh, you wouldn't be terribly surprised uh, to to find that there was a lot of uh, you know say Christian churchgoers places from uh, like West Virginia down to Texas um, you know across the Bible Belt like I said but then you get like New Mexico Utah Montana uh, some of these places and Utah and New Mexico actually led it with the their church attendance down, is down sixteen percent um, and then the next two was. Uh, Montana and Rhode Island at 15%. So th- it was kind of sh- surprising to see that, wow, this has been a, a huge drop-off in church attendance. I mean, you think about that, 16 people out of 100. You have, what, what should we say, 200 uh, people per ward that attend. And so that means that um, in 2007, you had 200 people in t- 2020 you have 170. Uh, it's dropped off by 30. You know, it, it's kind of crazy to have yeah, that of course, big that's of a across all congregations, not just Latter Day Saint congregations, but since no, it's, the, all, it's the, all congregations, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Since the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints is the dominant uh, congregation in our dominant faith in, in Utah, why do you think um, that? Uh, you know, Stephen, why do you think Utah is leading the nation in dropping uh, church attendance? What What could the reason for that be? Well, I think going to church, especially in Utah and in, in, in out there, is is part of the culture. Uh, like, for instance, within the evangelical world, you're encouraged to go to church every Sunday, but it's not like a big deal if you don't go every, especially now it's become more and more lax in that regard. Plus, these megachurches are so big, they wouldn't even notice if you weren't there. Uh, but I think that it's just culturally entwined. And I do think that when you have the disruption of COVID and people then... Uh, no longer uh, regularly attending a Sunday service, 
I think it just kind of caused people to develop new habits and it broke them out of their old way of doing things. And I think that, you know, church attendance is very important in Utah. And then once it was kind of taken away from them, I think people realized that maybe they, it wasn't for them anymore. They didn't really need it and they didn't really miss it. And they decided that they're just going to not go anymore. Uh, you know, and we'll see like, what does this look like five years from now? Now, again, this is also part of the current trend. There is church attendance is going down across the board. I think all churches definitely were affected by um, the disruption of COVID. And uh, I also think that, I do think that there's a certain percentage of people who uh, don't like the reaction that people had to, um, like one of the things that really bothered me was you would have these mandatory shutdowns of churches all across the board. Everybody was shut down for a while there. And these churches refused to, you know, uh, to, to close their doors or they're just, they were just very uh, adamant that this is their right, which in one sense it is true. It's, it is part of the First Amendment, but they were kind of obnoxious in it. And I think you have a certain percentage of people that saw like some of the craziness come out and they're like, I don't know if I want to go to church with these people. I think this whole crazy world that we're living in kind of exposed a lot of things that made people feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I think also the fact that I think the the, the Latter-day Saint church attendance is, is very, very strong. And I think it's taken longer for the downturn that has affected uh, Christianity and religion in general to catch up to Utah. And that's why the number is higher now. Whereas mm. I think, you know, if you looked even 10 years ago, I think you would have seen those numbers dropping across the nation a little more. So I think actually it's a testament to the, the sturdiness of the, of the Mormon faith because it's taken longer for the, these uh, losses to get to the beehive state. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds accurate. accurate. Yeah. So, um, you know, who, who knows what's going to happen in the future? But uh, I, I thought that was interesting that it would be leading the nation in that. And remember, uh, Elder Bednar spoke. They asked him in the press club last month about why church attendance was dropping. And you might recall his response. He said that people are not finding answers to their questions. That's why he thought that church attendance was dropping is people weren't finding the right answers. So I think that there is a lot of truth in. Uh, truth behind that statement. People want answers. And if their religion is not giving them the answers, then they won't attend. I mean, that's the purpose of religion is to answer life's questions. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So also we have uh, the, in, in the same vein here, uh, uh, Steve, uh, there was a, uh, <laughs> there's a big concert that came out here this last week, right? Yeah. You showed me this the other day and I was just so shocked by it to strive to be uh, to strive to be concert. And I guess the theme was trust in the Lord. And you played for we played some of these clips of these YouTube videos. And I swear, dude, I was watching the evangelical megachurch service, man. I was so mm -hmm. uh, shocked by it. And I actually watched some more after we um, uh, talked about it. And I just am truly fascinated by this um, to, to see that they're really kind of aping an evangelical megachurch worship service style, which I found really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yes, the Strive to Be is the uh, official church. It's an official church uh, YouTube account. And the Trust in the Lord is the young men's, young women's theme for the year. And they put on a massive concert in the conference center, which fits 21,000 people. I'm a musician myself, uh, and I played many concerts in there, but I've never heard anything quite like this. Let me play a few seconds from this concert. And it's unlike anything that I've ever heard before that was uh, from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.
So you're hearing some major, you know, some major jamming rock and roll solos in this. That's... Electric guitar solo, man. I never would have thought I would have heard that within, in that context. That's pretty, pretty wild. Yeah, yeah I, but... I mean, there's certain instruments that are actually banned in LDS chapels. You can't have a drum set. You can't have an electric guitar. You can't even play. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't even play a saxophone. But in the conference mm -hmm. center, they're letting it all loose. This really looks like a mega church, you know, mm -hmm. Christian mega church type of situation. That's sure pretty wild. That feel. Yeah, so uh, are they trying to reach out to the Generation Z? You know, Generation Z does not want the stale, you know, come, come ye saints played at, uh, you know, at 60 beats per minute on a piano with a bunch of old people singing. That that really doesn't do it for them. Well, are they when, trying to appeal to that Generation Z? Well, when, when, that, uh, when that Generation Z's great, great, great grandparents were walking across the plains um, with nothing to do all day, come, come ye saints was a big hit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was a big hit about a hundred years ago yeah <laughs> so we're a little bit behind the times here <laughs> you know uh I, I just wonder how long is it this because kind of like a pilot test honestly i think it was a pilot test mm -hmm. for the church yeah. i wanted to see the reaction and i think that you're going to see this go into the chat i think they're going to this is my you know prophecy again they're going to release re reduce some of these restrictions that are in the worship services at the chapel level to get more contemporary Christian, the church desperately wants to appear to be mainstream. Yeah, you know they, they, they've started in, um, like uh, adopting a, a lot of um, mainstream evangelical terms, things like worship, um, referring to Heavenly Father as God. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of the the language that they use is very like you know, instead of calling it wards, calling it congregations. Uh, these are things that are fairly new over the last 20 years or so. They've been slowly implementing some of this and uh, oh, yeah. well, even adopting just, it. Just mm -hmm. this past Easter, they actually showed some images of the cross. Mm -hmm. uh, it seemed uh, very much more, uh, they're trying to become more evangelical. And I think part mm -hmm. of it is, is that the evangelicals kind of culturally are the main influencer within Christianity, American evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. And it's kind yeah. of like we're the main like rival to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I can see some aping going on there, which I find very fascinating. Now, when I was on Mormon Stories, I actually kind of gave like a, a list of things that would improve uh, the church, the, the recommendations I would make to help improve the church, which was as an outsider is an audacious thing. But one of them was one, make the word of wisdom voluntary. Uh, but the other one was allow more freedom in worship. Uh, you know, like I tell people when I visited a congregation uh, in Lehigh, I'm in there and the first and I'm hearing them barely singing a song at a whisper. And the first thing that hits me is these people need a cup of coffee um, is, that, <laughs> is, is that it's so it's so quiet. And it's just like so different than the world that I'm in. You know, in mm -hmm. my in my world, you know, we raise hands, we clap hands. I mean, mm -hmm. dance in the aisles and that might be a little too much for you guys. But I think there should be a little bit more freedom in worship and allowing people the liberty to worship Jesus, worship, uh, worship Heavenly Father, whatever you want to say mm -hmm. uh, in their own way. Yeah. And yeah. everybody's got their own style. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of uh, of worshiping Jesus in your own way, Dallas Jenkins has been in the news about Jesus and Mormons recently. Right, Stephen? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting because, you know, last year when I first started in interacting with Mormons, guys, I didn't even know a Mormon until a year and a half ago. So I'm literally like just I all I knew it was through the books, you know, and, and, and watching YouTube. <laughs> but the first thing is, oh, you're an evangelical. I love the chosen. Uh, the chosen is huge in the evangelical world, but it seems like in some sense it's even bigger 
in the LDS world, which I find truly fascinating because mm-hmm. Dallas Jenkins actually comes from an area just outside Chicago, not too far from where I grew up in. There's kind of like a mini Bible belt that's part of the Chicagoland area. There's a lot of mega churches out there. Um, I was uh, I was actually friends with the televangelists that lived out there. Um, so it's a pretty well-known thing. And so Dallas, um, I found it so fascinating is when COVID happened, that for the second season of Chosen, they used the church sets to film the Jerusalem sets, which I found so fascinating. Now, this is the thing. Um, They've added on, Mormons on as producers, and a lot of Christians and evangelicals are really pushing back on it because essentially, first of all, evangelicals don't know anything about Mormonism. What they do know about it tends to be more like the God makers. So they almost have this satanic, like it's almost like the satanic sect. So to have like people like that involved in, in 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 an enterprise like that is verboten, and uh, so Dallas, you know, clarifies. You know, I, I have to tell you, it's very difficult to engage the LDS folk and not start realizing that you are kind of there are Christians, not all, not all of them, but I can say that about. I go to any Christian church and say, well, not everybody here is a Christian, uh, but I can tell that they're. You know, I tell people go by their fruits, so I can see how Dallas gets, you know, immersed in this world. And it's like everything he was taught about Mormons, it's the exact opposite. So, so yeah, he's, he's, he's kind of doing what I'm doing. He's walking in a minefield, and uh, I wish him well. So uh, what, 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 what did he say exactly that was so controversial? Well, because he was saying that Christians, that, well, the, the rumor was is that he was saying that Christians are Mormons too. I mean, Mormons are Christians. And that's just something you don't say because Mormons are not Christians within the conventional evangelical mindset, uh, you know, like the National Council of Churches will say that they're Protestants, but evangelicals like Bible-believing Christians would definitely put them outside of that world. And so Dallas, I mean, like I said, I, I'd like to talk to him one day because I, I imagine he's walking in this area and I, I'd love to maybe help him <laughs> get through it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, it, it's interesting because I believe I read, I saw a statistic that said that two thirds of converts to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are from Protestant and evangelical Christians. Right? Those missionaries out there are not converting atheists. They're not converting Hindus. They're not converting Muslims. They're really going after Protestants and evangelicals. Well, so when the church is trying to look more mainstream, like with the strive to the Lord, looking like a, a mega, uh, you know, looking like an evangelical mega church, that's because they know who their target audience is. Yep. Yep. It's very fascinating to see what happens here because I, I don't, I think denominational barriers are breaking down and that's happening like well, even within the evangelical world, nobody, churches don't even go by their denominational name. It's like new life church. Well, that could be Lutheran. That could be Methodist. Yeah. It could be any number of churches. And so uh, the barriers are breaking down. So it might actually, this maybe the church is looking at this as saying like, look, we can actually market ourselves in much the same way that an evangelical mega church would. And if people like it, um, then they might be drawn to our church. So it could be part of a marketing campaign. Why not do what has been successful for um, for the uh, evangelical world? So I, I definitely think that it was definitely something they put a few, you know, to, to just to see what where this would go. And I, I do find it interesting and I'll be keeping a close eye on it. And just remember that the church released a gospel topics essay of our Mormons Christians. That's a whole gospel topics essay that they devoted to that subject specifically to counter, uh, you know, people who would say that they're not Christians, uh, you know, uh, in that community. So they, you know, they're really trying to be as mainstream as they possibly can. Well, I think that's why the church is so nice to me. I mean, (laughs) I mean, honestly, guys, I mean, I literally have, 
I was one of the first people. I, so the latest edition of the Joseph Smith Papers Project comes out. It's 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 the uh, manuscript of the Book of Mormon uh, photographs, high resolution pho photographs. The book weighs nine pounds, uh, costs about a hundred dollars, and they overnighted it to me. I was like the first person in the country. I probably got it before some general authorities got it. And so <laughs> it's just pretty <laughs> wild to, that the church recognizes that I'm not an enemy and I'm not there to bash. And they've been more than happy to provide me BYU professors. People from the church historian's office have come on and I have ex access to people that other people don't have access to. Um, Robin Jensen of the uh, Justice with Papers Project came on. He was the editor of this. So I feel like I'm witnessing it firsthand that the church is definitely reaching out to me in their own way and they are being friendly and I have to give them props and thanks for sending me that book. It was really awesome. Well, your star is definitely rising in the uh, Mormon community. That is without a question. And we're very grateful to have you on here. We only have uh, two last articles uh, to go through here. And one is a wrap up of Under the Banner of Heaven. Now, uh, Dustin Lance Black, I think he gets very candid in this interview. He didn't give any, uh, to my knowledge, any actual interviews, uh, video interviews during the entire uh, seven week run of Under the Banner of Heaven. But as soon as it uh, wrapped up, he did. And I think that I'm going to play two clips from you for for both of you guys. I think what he really says in these clips, uh, this is an interview that was given on June 6, 2022 uh, from Gold Derby. Uh, you're going to see some of his motivations for doing Under the Banner of Heaven. Now, Al and I both speculated and a lot of people have speculated. Why did he do Under the Banner of Heaven? What is his purpose? What is his motivation? I think you're going to gain, gain a lot from hearing these two clips as to why he put it together. So let me play this first clip. It's about 20 seconds long. Hopefully this thing uh, sounds pretty good. Um, and, uh, and those questions about why my mother was treated differently, why the church did not intervene when violence entered our home, why they seemed to place the blame at her feet. Um, those, those questions uh, ate away at me because I wasn't allowed to ask them. And that in, in, my, in Mormonism, you were supposed to doubt your doubts, put those questions on a shelf. And, and I, I was obedient. I did that. So in this clip, he talks about how one of his motivations was based off of his mother, uh, how his mother was treated. And he's going to come back to that time and time again during this interview. And I really think that that is the reason that he chose the Lafferty story is because it was how Brenda was treated. And I know I'm psychoanalyzing here, but Brenda for Dustin Lance Black is a type of his mother, someone who is abused in Mormonism. And he wants to tell his mother's story through Brenda's eyes. That's at least what I get from it. Sure, wow. that, would admit, that would fit. Yeah, uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and and you're going to see in this full interview. I'm going to play another clip for you that he doesn't. Uh, well, well, first of all, where does is Dustin Lance right? Before I play the second clip, he says that you're supposed to doubt your doubts. Is is where's he getting that from? And put your questions on a shelf. Is that a thing in Mormonism? Oh, yeah, this uh, came uh, across the pulpit in general conference. I believe it was uh, Elder Uchtdorf told everybody to doubt your doubts before you doubt your uh, faith. Yeah, and putting the questions on a shelf, you, you see that through the, the series with Andrew Garfield quite a bit. Uh, he's, he was told by the general authority who's portrayed in there that you're supposed to put those questions on the shelf. Now, in this entire article, in the entire interview, he never mentions what I thought was going to be one of his motivations, and that was LGBTQ because Dustin Lance Black is, uh, is gay. But he doesn't mention that as a motivation whatsoever. And if you think about Under the Banner of Heaven, it doesn't touch anything uh, LGBTQ at all. 
No, there's, uh, let's see, a kiss between uh, Sam Worthington and the... Uh, oh, well, that's true. Yeah, that's brother. true. But that, that's about as as far as they go. Yeah, that is as far as uh, that is about as far as they would go. Uh, let me let me just say one other thing here, and that's uh, let me play this other clip here about uh, Dustin Lance Black, and we're going to leave it at that. Uh, we'll leave it in the show notes if you want to watch the entire art, of, uh, watch the entire interview. But it really gives you a good clue. He doesn't leave anything on the table. He lets you know exactly what his his reason was for making this uh, for making this series. Let me cue this up here and play this for you. And here we go. With anybody on the outside discussing the faith, frankly, anyone on the inside discussing the faith publicly. But I, I feel like it's time we have to do that. I mean, this is an American-born faith that is among the most misogynist faiths on the planet Earth today. And I'm sorry to say that because I have family I love who are still in the faith. But it's time for them to take a close look at that uh, and, and to, to ask why they are still to this day uh, encouraging families and children to pray to a misogynist God who would treat women the way women are treated in, in certainly in the fundamentalist Mormon faith, but also in the mainstream Mormon faith, women are not treated equally or as equally capable. So they're not going to like it. And there is pushback and there will be criticism, but I'm here for it. Bring it. So, I mean, basically he goes back to this time and time again, that it's the misogyny in the church that is the reason that he put together under the banner of heaven. And he still says, yes, it's in the fundamentalist church, but he says it's still alive in the church today. And that's the reason that he made under the banner of heaven. Any reaction to that? Is he right? I, th- I think it's very fascinating because, you know, I, I, I had Lindsay Hansen Park on uh, my after show the, uh, a couple weeks ago, and she talked about, um, you know, we, we had this conversation. That, so I've had Rebecca Biblioteca from the Good Book Club as my co-host. And I thought it, was, thought it was really important to have female voices on the program because they see, look, we're I'm a white dude, man, and I sometimes just don't see it. And I, I get I have certain advantages by being a white male in American society in general. Um, yeah. And so you don't notice these things. So I think I think it's really cool what uh, Dustin was doing was he wanted to kind of tell. First of all, he's telling his story, right, because he makes up a character that was reflective of him. And then he uses Brenda as a uh, as a an example of his mother. So if anything, he's telling his he I think Dustin was trying to find a way to tell his story also be critical of the church uh, in, in how he feels that it is uh, misogynistic and that it's very highly patriarchal. He, he hammers those themes constantly. And uh, I find that to be, uh, it's, it, this series really is more about Dustin than it is about Under the Banner of Heaven in the Lafferty's. Yeah. And so it's it's kind of a psycho autobiography of, of and him telling his story and finding the format to do it. I don't know if it really, I mean, I'm not, I'm kind of iffy on the series overall. I think they kind of blew it in some areas, but either way, I'm, I'm glad to hear like when Lindsay came on, she kind of clarified things to gave a better understanding. She was a paid consultant to the series, gave me a better un- understanding and insight of the motivations of Dustin. And also she being a feminist, it also was able to open my eyes in such a way that perhaps I didn't see it. And again, hearing what Dustin has to say, it seems to kind of wrap all that up in a nice bow. Yeah, and maybe that's the reason that he inserted Brenda with the BYU professor. You remember back in episode mm-hmm. one where he locks her into the broadcasting thing and he's really creepy. He's really trying to show every aspect of, you know, of uh, being a, mis- uh, you know, being a woman in the church. He's in a misogynist structure. Um, and, and I think if you go back and watch the series with that kind of a lens, with that understanding, I think the series makes a lot more sense if you understand his motivations. I think what's so interesting is that he let he. He uses Brenda as a way to to give voice. 
So here she is. She kind of like confronts this professor and kind of puts him in his place in a very unique way that doesn't happen that frequently, especially in that era. But then as she's a spoiler alert, folks, if you haven't seen it, um, as she's about to die, Dustin makes a point for her to have the final word and talk to both the Lafferty brothers and tell them. And she's able to speechify, give a speech saying, give, you know, you would. I don't know if that's what really happened, but I think he's kind of using that as a means of letting her voice be heard. And she kind of has the final say before she passes. Yeah. And he said, remember that there was violence that was done to his mother that was not addressed or not dealt with. He doesn't exactly go into details, but, you know, maybe he's 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 bringing that forward. He's projecting it onto Brenda. And, you know, that's kind of I I know I'm psychoanalyzing, but that's kind of like his mother's words that she could Mm -hmm. have that he could have had her say. Um, Yeah. That's just my feeling about it. Um, we also got from Andrew Garfield. We got his uh, a, a nice from Vanity Fair on Hollywood uh, in Hollywood. These are in our show notes. It said, this is his quote, too. And I want to bring up this quote because it, it shows his motivations as well. And, and let me let me share this quote with you. Quote, I had to feel like I was Mormon, study what it was to be a Mormon. And I got to try to fall in love with that religion. And there was a lot to fall in love with and a lot to like with any organized religion. What I found quite beautiful was a true sense of community, a family that feels inclusive to white people and supportive to white people and men particularly. And I am all those things. I visited Salt Lake City, Utah, and I spoke to lots of incredible people, ex-Mormons, police officer Mormons, cops who used to be Mormons, who had crises of faith. Those were the people I felt like I had to represent the ex-Mormons, end quote. And so Andrew Garfield is really saying that he was trying to represent the ex-Mormon point of view. And I think that that is why a lot of ex-Mormons feel like the show really speaks to them is because he wasn't really trying to represent Mormons. He said specifically he was trying to represent ex-Mormons. Yeah, that that fits for sure. You know, it was interesting is when I was talking to Lindsay, she, she knows one of the cops who um, consulted the, the show. Now, he, he remains nameless. Uh, he is an ex-Mormon, um, and he had a similar crisis of faith as a police officer. So actually, Andrew Garfield was kind of basing his character off of a real police officer who had a crisis of faith as a police officer. And just so you know, this police officer, his wife doesn't even know that he's he's out, you know, mentally yeah. out of the church. And mm-hmm. so uh, if anything, he was giving voice to a real person. So even though it's a fictional character, he did consult with an actual cop who, uh, he, who who's kind of telling his story as well. Yeah, for sure. And, and I, I think that comes through. Um, it's subtle, but uh, I, I think uh, the ex-Mormons are especially anybody that's in a mix that finds himself in that mixed faith marriage uh, where you have your spouse that's still believing, but you've left. Uh, I think that's going to really resonate with them as uh, Andrew Garfield's character, where he's going to try to jump through the hoops, go through the motions in order to preserve his, his family and his marriage. Yes. Uh, And that brings us to our last article. And that's a we're done with Under the Banner of Heaven for the most part. We reviewed all seven episodes, but we're starting up a new series here, which is on Netflix, which is called Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. Oh, this one. This one is so eerie, Uh, you know, and it's uh, it's got so many uh, little quips and sayings throughout it that are so designed to be um, uplifting or inspiring or, you know, just good advice. Like the whole keep sweet, pray and obey. I mean, that, that's a, a good theme for it. A great title for it. Um, because this was, uh, well, it's a quote from Rulon Jeffs. This was kind of his whole thing. 
uh, Warren Jeff's father, who was the leader of the FLDS community uh, down on the southern Utah border. Um, but they also had a very strong um, following in uh, Salt Lake in the Salt Lake Valley um, when Rulon Jeffs was the leader. Um, so the FLDS church, um, they branched off and went their own way after the LDS uh, church uh, said, hey, for real, you know, even underground, we're not doing polygamy anymore. And, uh, you know, polygamy, after 1890, it went underground. And so there was a couple of times throughout history. Uh, there was another time in 1904 where a second uh, manifesto was released by Joseph F. Smith that said, no, for real, guys, we're, we're not doing polygamy no more after this. And uh, then, you know, I think it was the 1920s where the uh, where the fundamentalists said, well, you guys are leaving behind the teachings of our sacred prophets. And so we can't abide that. And therefore they branched off and, uh, had their own thing. Um, you, you get this, there, there are, um, some LDS perspectives in, uh, in this, uh, series. And so you'll get to see it. There's, um, let's see, one of the main lawyers, he's LDS and he, he's pretty open about that. Um, but this, this show really is mostly focused on the FLDS and, uh, how that church has been run. Um, and, but I'll, I'll tell you, you get this sense um, uh, that this is really kind of how Joseph Smith probably was uh, by by watching Rulon Jeffs and Warren Jeffs. You, you see their the power that they hold, the the way that they talk with people, the way they handle people. It's really fascinating to watch. One thing I really appreciate that about this series right off the bat is it's mostly given from the female perspective and from the vic the actual victims perspectives. So you're getting interviews and a lot of FaceTime with people who were there during the trials, people who were there that were the victims of Rulon Jeffs. I mean, teenage brides that were married off to Rulon who was in his eighties at the time. Um, and then while they were still teenagers after Rulon passed away, were remarried over to Warren, his son, and oh man, they, they really creep up uh, Warren very well in this. So um, so far, I'm really really enjoying it. First episode uh, gives you a really good introduction to it. Um, it. Focuses a lot more on Rulon in the first episode and how the church was run under him. Uh, yeah. So the basic the first episode uh, gives us the history of the FLDS Church, basically from the inception, which was around the 1930s, where they were in Short Creek and also yeah. had uh, communities up in the Salt Lake area up until the time of the Winter Olympics in 2002, in which time uh, Rulon Jeffs and Warren Jeffs at that time said that, the, you know, they needed to gather to Hilldale. So they really, really uh, focused most of their manpower down there and they could have had 10 or 15,000 mm -hmm. people there. Yeah, but I found it to be absolutely compelling, incredibly thrilling. None of the baggage that Under the Banner of Heaven had, none of the weird uh, language and improper uh, scripts and, and any of the errors. I, I, it was incredibly compelling, just like Murder Among the Mormons. I cannot wait to watch episode number two. And what's fascinating to me is that Rulon Jeffs had really no succession uh, plan. And it's kind of like Joseph Smith. 
Joseph Smith did have a succession plan. It was Hiram mm-hmm. Smith. The problem was that they were both killed at the same time, and there wasn't really a codified succession plan for if they both uh, if they were both killed at the same time. And it just shows the rise of Warren Jeffs. And it is absolutely compelling. It is gripping. It is absolutely amazing. I cannot wait for episode number two. Uh, this is really a must watch if you're interested in the in the great and spacious yeah. beehive. Now, it, the whole thing's up. It's only four episodes. If you want to, you can binge the whole thing uh, like I did this last week. I've been through the whole thing. It is a wild ride. Um, you're going to definitely get a very sinister view into the life and mentality, the psyche of Warren Jeffs, master manipulator, uh, you know, just a, a real uh, guy that knows how to turn the screws to, be, to his people. And yeah, and his yeah. Alta school, I used to live in Sandy, Utah. His Alta school mm-hmm. at the base of little, uh, little Cottonwood Canyon was only like a mile and a half away from my house. Of course, I had mm-hmm. no idea that there was so many fundamentalists that were that close to me at mm-hmm. that time. That school has since been bulldozed since almost all the LDS moved to either the Union for Zion Ranch in Texas, which is eventually yeah. mostly shuttered or bound to, down to southern Utah. If you go onto YouTube and look for Warren Jeff's sermons, it's a fascinating thing, which I did as part of the preparation for this episode. And it's kind of like walking back into 100 years ago or even 150 years ago Mormonism, because Warren Jeffs really preaches, I really think, in the same style that you would hear from a Joseph Smith. His yeah. knowledge of the Book of Mormon is so infantile compared to what we know now. And that's because he doesn't have any of the modern scholarship, the textual analysis. He doesn't read Royal Scal. He doesn't read Royal Scalzen's, uh, you know, uh, works on it. He's never heard of the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies or the Maxwell Institute. And so it's kind of like taking a step back in time 150 years ago when he's preaching out of the Book of Mormon. It is so such a, a simple, simple faith in that respect. And he's, of course, he's still preaching polygamy, which is what we had for the first four presidents of the church. So yeah. it's really Mormonism the way that it was. If you took a member of the church who was baptized back in you know 1840 and you brought him into the modern day church, they would not feel at home, let's say 1845, they would not feel at home in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They would feel much more at home in the FLDS church. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, just because it has that familiar feel to them. Yeah, very fascinating. Now, I haven't had the chance to uh, watch this series. I do plan on watching it and probably going to do like something on my channel about it as well. Uh, but yeah, it's really interesting. And one of the things that, you know, I've been... I actually have befriended a lot of fundamentalists. And one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that most um, fundamentalists, most polygamists are not FLDS and they're actually quite normal. They dress like regular folk do. Uh, they're, they're more kind of like the people you saw on big love than, than what you see on FLDS. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they're just regular folk. That's probably one of the biggest surprises mm-hmm. I've had since doing this endeavor was I've befriended, I've befriended polygamists as an evangelical mm-hmm. and uh, become friends with them and had Ogden Kraut's widow come on, who's like the leading intellectual of mm-hmm. more uh, of fundamentalism for the 20th century. And they're just like us. That's was probably the biggest mm-hmm. shock. The FLDS are kind of like almost like the Amish, you know, yeah. <laughs> in a sense that they're so different, they dress different, and they're mm-hmm. just so peculiar that, uh, that they are not representative of mainstream, if you will, yeah. Mormon fundamentalism. For sure. And, you know, I know that mainstream Mormon, uh, mainstream Mormons uh, or the, the LDS church based out of Salt Lake City, um, what you know, a, lot, a lot of people used to call the, the Brighamite sect, um, they would they, they they keep playing the same notes about this. Oh, we have nothing to do with them. They're, they're not Mormons. They're not like us. And I think this is one of the reasons why the church is trying to uh, go away from the moniker Mormon. 
as they don't want to be associated with them. But I mean, really, I, I think it was in one of our earliest episodes, we said, you know, when it comes to defining what a Mormon is, I, I define it as anybody who follows the teachings of Joseph Smith or believes in Joseph, that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And so I think that's a, the best, uh, most simple way to define it. And by that definition, yeah, all of these different sects, they're all Mormons. But there are tons of uh, polygamous sects, uh, different offshoots from different churches um, all throughout history. I mean, this is uh, quite the family tree. And the the main uh, LDS church in Brigham City, or not Brigham City, in the, the Brigham Young's uh, established in Salt Lake City, that church really treats the FLDS like the druggy cousin that, oh, well, you know, he he went off the deep end. Yeah, we have the same last name, but yeah, we're we're nothing alike. And so it it really has that feel to it that, oh, don't associate us with that. We don't practice polygamy, haven't practiced polygamy since 1890. And, uh, you know, it's still striking to me that, like, just if you go into anybody's house, you'll see pictures of their family members and maybe even going back to their grandparents, even great-grandparents, you might have pictures. Well, if you go into the FLDS churches, you're going to see the the pictures of the prophets on the wall. And like up until, say, uh, Wilford Woodruff, it's all the same prophets. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's it, in, in fact, I think it even goes beyond that uh, to maybe as far as Heber J. Grant. But it's, it's interesting. I wonder... I wonder if the church is going to have an official response to this because the church did give an official response to the Under the Banner of Heaven book, but did not necessarily give an official response to the miniseries, although they released the Deseret News article about it. Um, but after Warren Jeffs, you know, his crimes became public in 2006, the church did give a statement about Warren Jeffs and said that it was, quote, misleading and inaccurate, end quote, to associate him with the Mormon faith. So Warren Jeffs has nothing to do with the Mormon faith. That seems uh, a bit of a stretch, considering that he still believes in the Book of Mormon. Check, Joseph Smith. Check, God the Father, Jesus Christ, Holy Ghost. Yeah, sharing ninety percent plus of beliefs has nothing to do with the Mormon faith. It seems like a bit of a stretch to me. Yeah. And we also had in nineteen ninety eight, uh, LDS Church President Gordon B. Hinckley said a polygamy quote. I wish to state categorically, categorically that this church has nothing whatsoever to do with those practicing polygamy. They are not members of this church. Most of them have never been members. They are in violation of the civil law and quote. But of course, the church still has quite a bit to do with polygamy, considering sure that does. Nelson is a polygamist. He's married to two women, and he will be with them in the eternities, according to church doctrine. And so is mm-hmm. President Oak. So President, yeah. uh, you know, the polygamy is still practiced, uh, just not in the same way that it was. So the church is really going to try to distance itself from this series. I wonder how strongly they will do so, whether we will see an official statement or a Deseret News article. Well, I think that you definitely opened the back door that could come to bite them in the end, because uh, that's that is a, a fact. Is that when it comes to the practices of the LDS temples, um, where where they uh, seal people together for time and all eternity, you do have the sitting current president of the church sealed to more than one wife, as well as uh, one of his counselors. I I don't know how you can say, well, we have nothing to do with that. Um, without putting that caveat at the end of saying, we have nothing to do with that in this life. But then again, it's still in this life that you've got sealed to more than one spouse. So it's uh, yeah. it's it's getting uh, <laughs> a lot of that, uh, what, double speak or a lot of that uh, trying to back out of it. 
the church is still maintaining its official official position that oh we have nothing to do with the FLDS church. And I think they're going to have to have a little more explaining to do when all said and done. Yeah, it is just. <laughs> You can't say that you have nothing whatsoever to do with the FLDS church because, I mean, you share so much in common with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. there's got to be a little bit more nuance here. Uh, and I, I imagine if this series becomes as popular as Under Banner of Heaven, you will see more response. The church definitely responds to what is out there in the public. So I want, I, I don't know how much this series is trending. There's four episodes. I haven't seen lo logged into Netflix to see if it's trending high, like Under the Banner of Heaven. That really trended on Hulu. That was like one of the number one uh, miniseries yeah. on Hulu. If oh, this sure. reaches that level, you're probably going to see a response of some sort. Yeah, um, I, I don't know if it will. I hope it does because this is a this is a story that really deserves to be told. Um, you know, and that maybe that's coming from seeing the whole thing. But I I really enjoy the way that it's being told, the way that uh, they have the perspectives of the victims themselves and. You know, this is not unfavorable towards the uh, L the mainstream LDS church. This is actually favorable towards them because it shows them as being some of the heroes that stepped in and helped open up uh, their homes to the people that survived this and to, who escaped it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just want to uh, let every uh, thank thank Steve, especially for coming on. It, we're on Twitter at at News Mormon. We're also on Patreon. If you want to um, go over there, you can unlock some interviews between Al and myself. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. I want to thank our uh, sponsor, uh, SignatureBooks.com. Really want to thank you, Steve, for coming on the program. Uh, do you have any last uh, comments? Uh, you know, MormonBookReviews.com. Anything you want to bring up? Oh yeah, just uh, just check me out on YouTube, Mormon Book Reviews, uh, and then of course uh, on the, all the podcast formats. I just want to thank you so much, guys, for having me on. Um, I know this is kind of a new endeavor for you guys, and it wasn't that long ago when I was just getting my start. And whenever I can uh, provide help to other people to kind of get them going, and I'm really excited that you guys have a sponsorship with Signature Books. Uh, I think that's great for you, and I wish you guys uh, well and good luck. Yeah, it has been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Stephen. You're welcome. Okay. Right. Well, uh, well, join us again next week for the uh, Mormon News Roundup. And, uh, well, uh, thanks so much, Al and Stephen. Yep. And thank you to Weird Alma for providing us our out intro and outro music. And we'll play you out again with um, Sympathies to Satan. When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, the Mormon Church, to remove the Lord's name from the Lord's Church is a major victory for Satan. 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 Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a being with no moral constraints. My number one goal is to hurt the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.